0: Slavery in the United States of America was the legal institution of human Chantel enslavement, primarily of native Africans and African-Americans that existed in the United States of America from the beginning of the nation until passage of the 13th Amendment in 1865. Slavery had been practiced in British America and from early colonial days and was legal in all 13 colonies at the time those colonies formed the United States. Under the law, a black enslaved person was treated as property and could be bought and sold and given away. Slavery lasted in about half of the United States until 1865. As an economic system, slavery was largely replaced by sharecropping and convict leasing. By the time of the American Revolution in 1775 and 1783, the status of enslaved people had been institutionalized as a racial caste associated with African ancestry. The role of slavery under the U.S. Constitution in 1879 was the most contentious issue during this drafting. Although the creators of the Constitution never used the word slavery, the final document through the three-fifths clause gave slave owners disproportionate political power. The law stated that black Americans or African Americans were rated as three-fifths of a human being. During and immediately following the Revolutionary War, abolitionist laws were passed in most northern states and a movement developed to abolish slavery. All northern states had abolished slavery in some way by 1805. Sometimes abolition was a gradual process and hundreds of people were still enslaved in the northern states as late as 1840 census. Some slave owners, primarily in the upper south, freed people they had enslaved and philanthropists and charitable groups bought and freed other. Enslaved people. The Atlantic slave trade was outlawed by individual states beginning during the American Revolution. The import trade was banned by Congress in 1808, although smuggling was common thereafter. The rapid expansion of the cotton industry in the Deep South after the invention of the cotton gin greatly increased demand for the labor of enslaved people, and the southern states continued as slave societies. The United States became ever more polarized over the issue of slavery. Split into slave and free states, driven by labor demands from new cotton plantations in the Deep South, the northern slave states sold over a million enslaved people who were taken to the Deep South in forced migration. The total population of enslaved people in the South eventually reached 4 million. As the United States expanded, the southern states attempted to extend slavery, Into the new Western territories to allow pro slavery forces to maintain their power in the nation. The new territories acquired via the Louisiana Purchase and Mexican Cession were the subject of major political cries and compromises. By 1850, the newly rich, cotton growing South was threatening to secede from the Union, and tensions continued to rise. Slavery was defended in the South as a positive good and a large Protestant domination split over the slavery issue into regional organizations of the North and the South. When Abraham Lincoln won the 1860 election on a platform of halting the expansion of slavery, seven states broke away to form the Confederacy. Shortly afterwards, the Civil War began when Confederate forces attacked the US Army at Fort Sumner. Four additional slave states then succeeded after Lincoln requested arms from them to make a retaliatory strike. Due to Union measures such as the Confiscation Act and the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, the war effectively ended slavery with the Union victory even before the institution was banned by the Constitutional Amendment. Following the Union victory in the Civil War, slavery was made illegal in the United States upon the ratification of the 13th Amendment in December 1865. The slave trade. The United States Constitution barred the federal government from prohibiting the importation of slaves for 20 years. Various states passed different restrictions on the international slave trade during that period. By 1808, the only state still allowing the importation of African slaves was South Carolina. After 1808, legal importation of slaves ceased, although there was smuggling via lawless Spanish Florida and the disputed Gulf Coast to the west. This route all but ended after Florida became a U.S. territory in 1821. The replacement for the importation of slaves from abroad was increased domestic production. Virginia and Maryland had little new agricultural development, and their needs for slaves was mostly for replacements for dissidents, <coughs> for decedents. Normal reproduction more than supplied these. Virginia and Maryland had surpluses of slaves. Their tobacco farms were worn out and the climate was not suitable for cotton or sugar cane. The surplus was even greater because slaves were encouraged to reproduce, although they could not marry. The white supremacist Virginian Thomas Roderick Drew wrote in 1832 that Virginia was a Negro-raising state. Virginia produced slaves. According to him, in 1832, Virginia exported upwards to 6,000 slaves per year. A source of wealth to Virginia. Another writer gives the figure in 1836 as forty thousand, earning for Virginia an estimated twenty-four million dollars per year. Where demand for slaves was the strongest in what was then the southwest of the country—Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, later Texas, Arkansas, Missouri—here there was abundant land suitable for plantation agriculture which young men of some capital established. This was expansion of the white money population, younger men seeking their fortune. The most valuable crop that could be grown on the plantation in that climate was cotton. The crop was labor intensive and the least costly laborers were slaves. Demand for slaves exceeded the supply in the Southwest. Therefore, slaves, never cheap if they were productive, went for a higher price, as portrayed in Uncle Tom's Cabin. Selling South was greatly feared. As published in a recent article, Selling South, in 1838 sale by the Jesuits of 272 slaves from Maryland to plantations in Louisiana went to benefit Georgetown University, which owes its existence to that transaction. Traders responded to the demand, including John Armfield and his uncle Isaac Franklin, who reputedly had made over a half million dollars in 19th century value in the slave trade setting up office in what was then the district of columbia a regional center of the slave trade in alexandria a major slave trading port for more than a century the two men went into the business in 1828 buying slaves in the north and selling them in the south in the united states in the early 19th century owners of female slaves could freely and legally use them as sexual objects. This follows free use of free female slaves on slaving vessels by crews. <clears throat> in the United States, in the early 19th century, owners of female slaves could freely and legally use them as sexual objects. This follows the free use of female slaves on slaving vessels by crews the slave owner has in his power to violate the chastity of his slaves. And not a few of these guys were encouraged to exercise such power. Hence it happens that in some families it is difficult to distinguish the free children from the slaves. It is sometimes the case that the largest part of the master's own children are born, not of his wife, but of the wives and daughters of his slaves, whom he has basely prostituted as well as enslaved. This vice, the bane of society, has already become so common that it is scarcely esteemed a disgrace. Fancy was the code word that indicated the girl or young woman who was suitable for or trained for sexual use. In some cases, children were abused in this manner. There's documentation of sale of a fancy girl at 13 years old to Zephaniah Kingsley Jr. Furthermore, females of breeding age were encouraged to procreate and their potential to bear children raised their value as slaves since their offspring would eventually provide labor or be sold, enriching the owners. Enslaved women were sometimes medically treated to enable or encourage fertility. The variations in skin color found in the United States make it obvious how often black women were impregnated by whites. For example, in the 1850 census, 75.4% of free Negroes in Florida were described as mulattoes or mixed race. Nevertheless, it is only very recently with DNA studies that any sort of reliable number can be provided, and the research has only begun. Light-skinned girls who contrasted with the darker field workers were preferred. The sexual use of black slaves by either slave owners or those who could purchase the temporary services of a slave took various forms. A slave owner or his teenage sons could go to the slave quarters area of the plantation and do what he wanted, usually in front of the rest of the slaves or with minimal privacy. It was common for a house female, a housekeeper, maid, cook, laundress, or nanny to be used by one or more members of the household for their sexual enjoyment. House of prostitutions throughout the slave states were largely staffed by female slaves providing sexual services to their owners for profit. There were a small number of free black females engaged in prostitution or concubinage, especially in New Orleans. Slave owners who engaged in sexual activity with free male <clears throat> with female slaves were often the elite of the community. They had little need to worry about public scorn. Their relationships appeared to have been tolerated and in some cases even quietly accepted. Southern women used to be quoted as saying, we do not trouble ourselves about that. Light-skinned women, young girls, were sold openly for sexual use. Their price was much higher than their field hand <coughs> counter, counter females. Special markets for the fancy girl trade existed in New Orleans and in Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky. Historian Philip Shaw describes an occasion when Abraham Lincoln and Alan Gentry witnessed such sales in New Orleans in 1828. Gently vividly remembered a day in New Orleans when he and the 19 year old Lincoln came upon a slave market. Pausing to watch, Gently recalled looking down at Lincoln's hands and seeing that he was double fisted and his knuckles went white. Men wearing black coats and white hats were buying field hands for five to eight hundred dollars. And then when the sale of fancy girls began, Lincoln, unable to stand it any longer, muttered to Gentry, Alan, that's a disgrace, and if I ever get a lick at that thing, I'll hit it hard. Those considered educated and refined were purchased by the wealthiest clients, usually plantation owners, to become personal sexual companions. There was a great demand in New Orleans for fancy girls. <coughs> The issue, which did not come up frequently, was the threat of sexual intercourse between black male and white female. Just as the black women per- per- were perceived as having a trace of Africa that supposedly incited passion and sexual wantonness, the men were perceived as savages unable to control their lusts given an opportunity. Another approach to the question was offered by Quaker and Florida plant. Planner Zephaniah Kingsley Jr., he advocated and personally practiced deliberate racial mixing through marriage as part of his proposed solution to the slavery issue, racial integration, called amalgamation at the time. And in an 1829 treatise, he stated that mixed race people were healthier and more often more beautiful that interracial sex was hygienic and that slavery made it convenient. Because of these views not tolerated in Spanish Florida, he found it impossible to remain long in territorial Florida and move with his slaves and multiple wives to a plantation in Haiti, now in the Dominican Republic. There were many others who less fragrantly practiced interracial common law marriages with their slaves. In the 19th century, proponents of slavery often defended the institution as a necessary evil. At that time, it was feared that the emancipation of black slaves would have more harmful social and economic consequences than the continuation of slavery. In 1820, Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers of the United States, wrote in a letter with slavery, We have the wolf by the ear. We can neither hold him nor safely let him go. Justice is in one scale and self-preservation in the other. The French writer and traveler Alex de Tocqueville in his influential Democracy in America in 1835 expressed opposition to slavery while observing its effects on American society. He felt that a multiracial society without slavery was untenable, as he believed that prejudice against blacks increased as they were granted more rights. For example, in Northern states, he believed that the attitudes of white Southerners and the concentration of the black population in the South were bringing the white and black populations to a state of equilibrium and were a danger to both races because of the racial differences between the master and the slave. He believed that the latter could not be emancipated. Robert E. Lee wrote in 1856, there are few, I believe in this enlightened age, who will not acknowledge that slavery as an institution is a moral and political evil. It is idle, expatite on its disadvantages. I think it is a greater evil to the white than to the colored race. While my feelings are strongly enlisted in behalf of the latter, my sympathies are more deeply engaged for the former. The blacks are immeasurably better off here than in Africa morally, physically, and socially. The painful discipline they undergo is necessary for their further instruction as a race and will prepare them, I hope, for better things. How long their servitude may be necessary is known and ordered by a merciful province. However, as the abolitionist movement's Agitation increased in the area for development for plantations expanded. Apologies for slavery became more faint in the South. Leaders then described slavery as a beneficial scheme of labor management. John C. Calhoun, in a famous speech in the Senate in 1837, declared that slavery was, instead of an evil, a good, a positive good. Calhoun supported, in his view, with the following reasoning. In every civilized society, one portion of the community must live On the labor of another, learning and science and the arts are built upon leisure. The African slave, kindly treated by his master and mistress and looked after in his old age, is better off than the free laborers of Europe. And under the slave system, conflicts between capital and labor are avoided. The advantages of slavery, in this respect, he concluded, will become more and more manifest if left undisturbed by interference from without as the country advances in wealth and numbers." South Carolina Army officer, planner, and railroad executive Jane Gadsden called slavery a social blessing, an abolitionist, the greatest curse of the nation. Gadsden was in favor of South Carolina's succession in 1850 and was a leader in efforts to split California into two states, one slave and one free. Other Southern writers who also began to portray slavery as positive good Were James Henry Hammond and George Fitzhugh, they presented several arguments to defend the practice of slavery in the South. Hammond, like Calhoun, believed that slavery was needed to build the rest of society. In a speech to the Senate on March 4, 1858, Hammond developed his mud seal theory, defending his view on slavery, stating, Such a class you must have. You would not have that other class which leads progress, civilization, and refinement. It constitutes the very mudsill of society and a political government, and you might as well attempt to build a house in the air as to build either one without the other. Except on this mudsill, Hammond believed that in every class one group must accomplish all the menial duties, because without them the leaders in society could not progress. He argued that the hired laborers of the North were slaves too. The difference is that our slaves are hired for life and well compensated. There is no starvation, no begging, no want of employment, while those in the North had to search for employment. George Fitzhugh used assumptions about white superiority to justify slavery, writing that the Negro is but a child and must be governed as a child. In the Universal Law of Slavery, Fitzhugh argues that slavery provides everything necessary for life and that the slave is unable to survive in a free world because he is lazy and cannot compete with the intelligence of European white race. He states that the Negro slaves of the South are the happiest, and in some sense, the freest people in the world. Without the South, he said the slave would become an insufferable burden to society, and society has a right to prevent this and can only do so by subjecting him to domestic slavery. On March 21st, Alexander Stevens, vice president of the Confederacy, delivered his cornerstone speech. He explained the differences between the Confederate States Constitution and the United States Constitution, laid out the cause for the American Civil War as he saw it, and defended slavery. The new Constitution has put at rest forever all the agitating questions relating to our particular institutions. African slavery as it exists among us, the proper status of the Negro and our form of civilization. This was the immediate cause of the late rupture and present revolution. Jefferson in his forecast had anticipated this as the rock upon which the old union would split. He was right. What was conjecture with him is now a realized fact, but whether he fully comprehended the great truth upon which that rock stood and stands may be doubted. The prevailing ideas entertained by him and most of the leading statesmen at the time of the formation of the old constitution were that the enslavement of the African was in violation of laws of nature. That it was wrong in principle, socially, morally, and political. It was an evil they knew not well how to deal with. But the general opinion of the men of that day was that somehow or other, in order of or province, the institution would be evanescent and pass away. Those ideas, however, were fundamentally wrong. They rested upon the assumption of the quality of the races. This was an error. It was a sandy f- foundation, and the idea of a government built upon it when the storm came and the wind blew, it fell. Our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite ideas. Its foundations are laid. Its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery's subordination to a superior race is his natural and moral condition. The view of the Negro race was backed by pseudoscience. The leading researcher was Dr. Samuel A. Cartwright inventor of the mental illness of drapetomania, the desire of a slave to run away, and dysasthia astes- aptopica rascality, which was cured by whipping. In other words, the fact that a black person wanted to get away from slavery was a mental disease and could be cured by whipping. The Medical Association of Louisiana set up a committee of which he was chair to investigate the diseases and physical peculiarities of the Negro race. Their report first delivered to the Medical Association in an address and published in their journal and then reprinted in part widely circulated Beau's review. Slavery is a volcano, the fires of which cannot be quenched, nor its ravages controlled, which already fill its convulsions. And if we sit idly gazing upon its flames as they rise higher and higher out of our happy republic will be buried in ruin beneath its overwhelming energies. That was spoken by William Ellsworth, an attorney for Prudence Crandall in 1834, as abolitionism rose in the North. Beginning during the revolution in the first two decades of the post-war era, every state in the North abolished slavery. There were the first abolitionist laws in the Atlantic world. However, the abolition of slavery did not necessarily mean that the existence of slaves became free. In some states, they were forced to remain with their former owners as indentured servants, free in name only, although they not be sold and thus families cannot be spit and their children were born free. The end of slavery did not come in New York until July 4th, 1827, when it was celebrated with a parade. However, in the 1830 census, the only state with no slaves was Vermont. In 1840 census, they were still slaves in New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, and Wisconsin. There were none in these states in the 1850 census. In Massachusetts, slavery was successfully challenged in court in 1783 in a freedom suit by Quack Walker. He said that slavery was in contradiction to the state's new constitution of 1780, providing for equality of men. Free slaves were subject to racial segregation and discrimination in the North. In many cases, they did not have the right to vote until ratification of the 15th Amendment in 1870. Most northern states passed legislation for gradual abolition, first freeing children born to slave mothers and requiring them to serve lengthy indentures to their mothers' masters, often into their 20s as young adults. Pennsylvania's last ex-slaves were freed in 1847, Connecticut's in 1848, and while neither New Hampshire. No, New Jersey had any slaves in the 1850 census and New Jersey only one in New Hampshire, none in 1860 census. Slavery was never prohibited in either state until ratification of the 13th amendment in 1865 And New Jersey was one of the last states to ratify it. None of the Southern states abolished slavery before 1865, but it was not, us- uh, it was not unusual for individual slave owners in the South to free numerous slaves, often sliding revolutionary ideas in their wills. Methodists, Quakers, and Baptist preachers traveled in the South, appealing to slave owners to let their slaves go, but their missions and societies in southern states. By 1810, the number of proportion of free blacks in the population of the United States had risen dramatically. Most free blacks lived in the North, but even in the Upper South, the portion of free blacks went from less than 1% of all blacks to more than 10% even as the total number of slaves was increasing throughout imports. Northerners predominated in the westward movement into the Midwestern territory after the American Revolution. As the states were organized, they voted to prohibit slavery in their constitutions when they achieved statehood. Ohio in 1803, Indiana in 1816, Illinois in 1818. What developed was a northern block of free states united in one contiguous great geographic area that generally shared an anti-slavery culture. The exceptions were the areas along the Ohio River settled by the southerners, the southern portions of Indiana, Ohio, and Illinois. Residents of those areas generally shared in southern culture and attitudes. In addition, these areas were devoted to agriculture longer than the industrialized northern parts of the states and some farmers used slave labor in Illinois, for example. While the trade in slaves was prohibited, it was legal to bring slaves from Kentucky into Illinois, use them there as long as the slaves left Illinois one day per year. The emancipation of slaves in the North led to the growth of the population of Northern Free Blacks from several hundred in the 1700s to nearly 50,000 by 1810. Journalist Douglas A. Blackman reported in his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Slavery by Another Name, that many blacks were virtually enslaved under convict leasing programs, which started after the Civil War. Most southern states had no prisons. They leased convicts to businesses and farms for their labor, and the lessee paid for food and board. The incentives for abuse were satisfied. The continued involuntary servitude took various forms, but the primary forms included convict leasing, personage, and sharecropping, with the latter eventually encompassing poor whites as well. By the 1930s, whites constituted most of the sharecroppers in the South. Mechanization of agriculture had reduced the need for farm labor, and many blacks left the South in the Great Migration. Jurisdictions and states created fines and sentences for a wide variety of minor crimes and used these as an excuse to arrest and sentence blacks. Under convict leasing programs, African American men often guilty of no crime at all, were arrested and compelled to work without pay, repeatedly bought and sold, and coerced to do the bidding of the leaseholder. Sharecropping, as it was practiced during this period, often involved severe restrictions on the freedom of movement of sharecroppers who could be whipped for leaving the plantation. Both sharecropping and convict leasing were legal and tolerated both by the North and South. However, Personage was an illicit form of forced labor. Its existence was ignored by authorities while thousands of African-Americans and poor Anglo-Americans were subjected subjected, and held in bondage until the mid-1960s and the late 70s. With the exception of cases of personages beyond the period of reconstruction, the federal government took almost no action to enforce the 13th Amendment until December 1941 when President Franklin Delano Roosevelt summoned his attorney general. Five days after Pearl Harbor, at the request of the president, Attorney General Francis Biddle issued circular number 3591 to all federal prosecutors, instructing them to actively investigate and try any case of involuntary servitude or slavery. Several months later, convict leasing was officially abolished, but aspects have persisted in other forms While historians argue that other systems of penal labor were all created in 1865 and convict leasing was simply the most oppressive form. Over time, a large civil rights movement arose to bring full civil rights and equality under the law to all Americans. That is the legacy of slavery in the United States of America. So, lately, a lot of my white friends want to argue that all lives matter. <clears throat> to minimize the pain and suffering and the cries that come from the cry of black lives matter. I offer you this proposal. Let's start slavery all over again. This time, let's make white people slaves. So I get to rape you, steal your property, make laws that don't allow you on the street after dark. I will not hire you. I will not hire your wife. I will not hire your daughter or son. And when you're hungry and poor because you can't get a job because of the color of your skin, I will call you a welfare queen and berate you. And if by some miracle you find a way through all of that and succeed, I will burn down all that you have achieved. And I will go to court and lie and get away with it. And even if you just want to watch birds and I don't want your kind in my neighborhood, I will get in a truck and track you down with my friends and my gun. And I will shoot you down and claim self-defense, even though all you were doing was wearing running shorts. And if you complain, I will call you ungrateful and dismiss your pain as whining and tell my friends that this is a sign that you are of weak people and genetically inferior. And when it looks like you have even survived that, I will block your ability to vote by sabotaging voting machines in your neighborhoods and illegally taking you off the voting rolls. And I will make sure that my police departments intimidate you so you are afraid to leave the rundown, underserved communities we put you in. by restricting your opportunities. And if you survive that and build your own schools and get educated and have a person of your race rise to the highest office in the land, I will delegitimize that person and claim that he or she is actually a foreigner. And I will gather my group to oppose any measure presented, even if it's something I want. And if you're able to rise above that and do good, I will destroy all you created, even if it hurts my own people. So no one will ever believe any idea from your kind can ever be good or trusted. And if you survive that, I will stand silent as one of your kind dies slowly as he or she loses their last breath with a knee of a police officer standing upon that person's neck to show that no matter what you do, how long you try, how far you get, or how much you achieve, you will know that even those who are supposed to protect you will take your last breath let you know that you are never safe never free never loved never trusted and never wanted no matter how hard you try or how much you achieve and I will do all that because my parents told me that is what I'm supposed to do so the next time you want to say that all lives matter tap that person on the shoulder that you know that hates me because of my skin color the next time you want to say all lives that all lives matter why don't you tap that person on the shoulder who hates that interracial couple simply because they're interracial. Next time you want to say that all lives matter, why don't you call your congressman and say that taking people illegally off the voting rolls and putting broken machines in the neighborhoods of minorities is illegal and wrong and does not represent American democracy. Tap him on the shoulder and tell him that all lives matter. And the next time you want to say that all lives matter, Maybe you might want to have some sympathy for a child who was playing with a toy gun who took 18 bullets because some police officer said halt and put it down and started shooting within 1.4 seconds of arriving on the scene. You're right. All lives do matter, especially black lives after what we've been through.